We have a rich, rich text before us. I love it when we come to a new section of Scripture because as you come to a new section of Scripture, it's just coming to a new theme, new idea. It's a new perspective that's uh, unfolded by the author. And to look at sometimes a lot of themes that we've covered before in our studies, but uh, in this case, we get to see a theme in a new setting and see new riches from that theme. And that's no less certain than this text before us. It's interesting about this text. Just I want to start with making some kind of high-level observations of our text and then work our way down into um, our study. In fact, we're really just going to cover the first part of 9, Let Love Be Without Hypocrisy. We will get through that section this morning. But before that, let me just set up all that Paul is doing here. So we kind of have a, a textual framework for this entire series for us. By a big and broad observation here, you remember that in Romans 12, 1 through 8, Paul talks about, particularly in verses 6, 7, and 8, he talks about the use of spiritual gifts or grace gifts. He talks about how we use those gifts within the body in a proper way. All of this demonstrates from the context and expression of our faith and love for God. But it is curious also to observe, if you were to turn over to 1 Corinthians, you don't have to, but in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see that other expression describing love there. And you see that description of love, uh, of what love is, patient and kind, it's not envious, does not boast, etc. And in each of those cases, you see Paul describing this is what love is. Now here in Romans twelve nine, Paul starts with the phrase, let love be without hypocrisy, and then he continues on and gives a series of descriptions and commands. Highlighting, I think ultimately culminating up to the high point in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That is the high point of this entire section. What's curious, again, just by a outside observation, very high level, that at two times when Paul gets into a discussion on gifts... Grace gifts here in Romans 12 and spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. After a discussion on the use of gifts, he then moves into a discussion on love. So that gifts and love are side by side and we could even make the observation as like this. It is this, love is always a spiritual duty. Whenever you're exercising your particular grace gift, it is to be exercised through the practice of genuine love. That is to say something like this, that whatever love that we express amongst ourselves is God's people. Whatever love that we demonstrate must be a love that is supernatural, that goes beyond what the natural man can produce. A love that must be more than our common likes and our common preferences and our common perspectives. It must be a love that is more than something that could be gained by having a favorite sports team or living in a shared community. 
It must be more than a love that has the similar love for particular spiritual heroes or a same doctrinal heritage. It must be a love driven by the Spirit's work in our midst. The Spirit is equipping. The Spirit is enabling. Spirit is moving in our midst, strengthening us to be useful, to demonstrate the love of God to others. This would demonstrate the God's work in our midst, that our love is more than what is produced by our own natural affections. Our love is more than something that is related because we are family. Our love is more than a cultural identity. It's more than something we have because of a shared economic class. It is a love energized by the gospel and the Spirit of God. And this is where Paul takes us. From Romans 12, really I believe from Romans 12 verse 9 through Romans chapter 15 and verse 33, he takes us on an extended discussion on the practice of love. Now, that would be one long sermon series, like 128 sermons of all on love that would be uh, difficult to break out and share with others in bite-sized ways. So we won't take the whole section, otherwise my kids will mercilessly mock me as part 37, Dad, of this series. But we should see, and, and as we work our way this morning, we will see that very thing. What we see here in Romans 12... 9 through 21, is the mindset of love, the kind of practice, the identity of love. If 1 Corinthians 13 gives the direct statement, love is, Romans 12, 9 and following, gives what love does, how love operates, how love thinks and delights, how love consumes and moves in our midst and operates among us. And it is rather amazing how Paul unfolds it here in these verses. In fact, we're just breaking off section 9 through 21 of chapter 12. And what you see in these verses are 30 direct or indirect imperatives. 30 commands. An imperative is a command. And you have 30 commands in this text. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that number, my initial thought was, Lord, it was hard to get 10 right let alone 30 of them right. So let me kind of ease your conscience a little bit because I love how Paul unfolds this here. I don't want you to have a kind of a spiritual anxiety attack thinking about 30 commands that I have to follow here. Let me erase two of them right away. Verse 20, it's a quoting of the Old Testament as an illustration. So we have two less commands here. It's just by illustration. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. He's illustrating the point he made in verse 19. So we actually have 28 direct commands from the Apostle Paul. So that's a little lighter, right? So we're a little easier. But also notice just the way in which Paul unfolds this for us. Because he actually only gives six direct commands. The first two come in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. These are the first two direct imperatives in this text. Verse 16 gives another imperative. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't be proud. That is the third command. Verse 19 
leave room for the wrath of God. The phrase leave room is an imperative from the Apostle Paul. And then in verse 21, the last two imperatives. Do not be overcome but by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome, but overcome. So these are the six direct commands that Paul gives in this section. And yet it is the force of these six direct statements that carry this whole section, that start to push this whole section towards exhortation after exhortation. In fact, it is so heavy on this text that if you look back at verse 9, notice how verse 9 starts, let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, it reads in the Greek, love unhypocritically. There are two nouns. There's not even a verb. You have to add the verb yourself. That's why if you notice in the New American Standard there, the word let and be are in italics is because the translators are putting it there because the force is implied. Let it be filled with love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine with sincerity. Look down in verse 10. There's another implied imperative. Let uh, be devoted to one another. You may also see the italics. That's because it's supplied by the translator. Another implied one is in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. All of these are to say that the force of the context, the force of what Paul has written here is driving the English text to reflect this exhortation that's taking place. Jump down to verse 15. He gives a little uniqueness there. Rejoice. Literally, it's kind of an infinitive. It means to rejoice or to weep. So rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It is, again, the force is this is how we should be conducting ourselves. With somebody rejoicing, we're rejoicing alongside of them. Somebody who's weeping, we're weeping alongside of them. Now what is amazing is that the remaining 17 imperatives here are actually present participles, which means right now, regularly and continually, this is how we operate we are, notice back to verse 9, abhor what is evil, that's a present participle, meaning abhorring, regularly, continually abhorring what is evil, regularly, continually clinging to what is good, and on down the line, 17 more times he states it just like that, which says this. He could have just come out of the gate and just given us 30 commands, command after command after command. Abhor evil, cling to what is good, don't lag behind, you know, and on down the line. But instead, he kind of gently lays it out. Gently says, here's what it is. So this is where I get the sense then that this is love's mindset, love's practice. As he lays these 30 commands out, and as he begins to unfold them, he gets to begin to identify what our practices ought to be, what our operations in the Christian life should look like, what really distinguishes who we are and what we do, are distinguished by these things that Paul calls our attention to do. And they are actions. Sometimes they're inward actions of thoughts and desires. Sometimes they're external actions of practices, but they're actions. They're things we're called to do. And even more than that, as he is talking about love and he's talking about the mindset of love, we could 
technically argue this morning that Romans 13.1 starts right here in Romans 12.9 because in Romans 13.1, notice what he says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That is command number 31, be subject to authorities. And then command number 32, after that, from verse 2 through verse 7, he explains that command. So verse 2 through verse 7 is a kind of excursus explaining the point that he gave in verse 1 and then verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, owe nothing to anyone. Again, this is a command, owe nothing but to love. That's command number 32. And notice the high point of this. Oh, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. High point that... Paul is taking us to is this high view of the practice of love. In fact, as I said, I could argue that Romans 12, 9 through 15, 33 is one long sermon on the practice of love. In fact, it has seven points. Let me give you the seven points so you could go back on your own and see this. You see, in Romans 12, 9 through 21, point number one, how love rules over us. The rule and the practice of love among us. And then Romans 13, 1 through 7, you see how love responds to authority. And then in Romans 13, 8 through 14, you see how love fulfills godliness. And then in Romans 14, verses 1 through 23, you see how love practices liberties. Notice chapter 14 and verse 15 says this, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy your your, or do not destroy with your food for whom Christ died. There is the practice of, a love practices liberties in a righteous way. Then in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, we see how love preserves unity. In verses 7 through 13 of chapter 15, we see how love receives others. And then finally, the last point of Paul's sermon on love would be in verses 14 through 33, which would be how love builds up others. The whole section from 12.9 through 15.33 is a long excursus explaining the practice of love. What does love look like? If we wanted to explain and answer that question, we would do a long and extended evaluation of this very section, which, by the way, you're in luck. That's exactly what we're going to do. So it's going to take us a while. We're going to walk through these very things. It's essential that we know what love is and how love operates. It's essential to the life of the church. It is essential to our own spiritual lives and union with God. It is essential because there's all kinds of noise around us of people telling us this is what love looks like and this is what you should do and this is how you should practice and this is what you, how you should treat me and this is how you should conduct yourself. 
And right here we have, from the pen of the Apostle Paul himself, an extended explanation of the practice of love among God's people. So we'll just break it up here in verses 9 through 21 and get a little long runway that's going to head us into chapter 13, which is filled with a little controversy. We'll leave that controversy to that time. At this point, let's look at what Paul is saying here in, in Romans twelve nine, and we'll just draw our attention down to this. So we unpack these verses. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to unpack each one, but we'll take it a week at a time and see how it goes. But one might argue this point or say, Pastor, I wish you were a little more topical. That would be better for me. Well, you are in luck because that's exactly where we're at right here. This is what I would call a exegetically derived topical sermon series. Exegetically derived because Paul gives us the topics. Topical because we're going to look through the testimony of Scripture and church history to give perspective as to what each of these principles are meaning. And by the way, I'm warning you out of the gate that my gift of exhortation tends to thrive in this particular context when there's no restraints, which means the conviction level rises for all of us. So it started with me this week, and I get to share the burden with you. This is just a joy of what God has given us when he has given to the church the gift of exhortation. So don't shoot the messenger. Just remember, the Lord gives this gift. In fact, I mean, if you want to say you think I'm joking, I have 11 ways to expose hypocritical love. So that's what's coming in this sermon here. As we work again our way through this text, Again, I, I am confident in what Paul is given to us that's going to encourage our hearts. So point number one of this series with, as I said, 11, well, actually 12, because I'm giving you an extra, 12 subpoints. but it's in 9a. Let love be without hypocrisy. Here's the point. Our love is to be genuine. Our love is to be genuine. And the way that Paul lays this out is he says literally, love without hypocrisy. Love is to be genuine. It is to be sincere. It is to be of the real thing. It is to be not manufactured by our own efforts and practices. It is to be something that is of the most genuine and authentic source. This particular word, hypocrisy, used many times in the New Testament, but in the negative uh, sense, without hypocrisy, is used six times in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 6, saying that we are to love in a genuine way. So that's why it says, in genuine love, is the way it's translated. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, we are to exercise a sincere faith, so a faith that's without hypocrisy. 2 Timothy 1, 5, it's translated as sincere faith. And James 3, 17 says that, that wisdom from God is without hypocrisy. And then in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, Peter says we are to have a sincere love. 
Three times this phrase is used in reference to love. Twice it's used in reference to faith. In using reference to love, it says this, we are to have a genuine, sincere love. We're also to have a genuine and sincere faith. A hypocrite is described as an actor. A hypocrite is described as one who plays a role. In the Greek mind, if you were an actor or an actress, you were actually paid to be a hypocrite. We understand an actor. We understand an actress and their role. We're not uh, offended by such a practice because we know what they're doing. We are not confused thinking, for example, that Tom Cruise is actually Ethan Hunt or Jack Reacher, which now you know the movies that I watch, but... We're not confused when we see that practice. We're not confused by their portrayal on the screen. But when somebody within the church pretends to be one thing, but their heart is something different, well, then that is hypocrisy. And that is what our text calls attention to. That we are to have a kind of love that is genuine and not hypocritical, that is not an act, it's not a show, it's not something that we put on as externals, but privately we live something completely different. The Bible Dictionary defends and explains hypocrisy like this. It says hypocrisy is the dissimulation of one's real character of belief, a false assumption of character of belief. It says the Greek word signifies the part taken by an actor, hence an outward show. Hypocrisy is professing to be what one is not and is generally applied to religious character. One who says one thing, this is what I am, but lives entirely differently, is then the hypocrite that this word is calling attention to. One more definition Hypocrisy, then, is an outward pretense masking an inner reality. It's easy to put on a particular show, a particular reality, but have a heart that is somewhere completely different. So what Paul is going to do here as he begins this section is draw our attention to genuine love. What does genuine love look like? And he reminds us we are to love in such a way that there is no hypocrisy. We love despite how people respond to us. We love the same way in public as we do in private. We love for the best of others, not for our own personal gain. Describing Hypocrisy, Spurgeon said this in a sermon. He said that it is said that there is a certain actor who had acted the part of Richard III so admirably and had thrown himself into the role so thoroughly that he imbibed the idea that he was actually a king. And he became so extravagant in his living and, in addition, so haughty in his behavior that he brought upon himself contempt and beggary. It says, doubtless, there are many who at first were mere actors, who at last have grown into the conceit that the part which they have merely acted is reality. So they have continued to strut with all the pride of Pharisees until God has plucked the mask off their wicked faces and set them up to be targets for the arrows of eternal contempt. 
beware, lest that should be our lot, lest inadvertently to ourselves at the first being mistaken, we should at last become miserable dupes and deceivers of others. Spurgeon's exhortation was that those who, uh, as the adage says, fake it until you make it, is not the principle that drives the Christian life. We're not pretending to be something in order until it becomes a reality. We are actually changed from within, from the heart, by the gospel and the work of the Spirit that God transforms us on the outside. Spurgeon warns against this kind of hypocrisy. And I was thinking about this phrase, again, here in Romans twelve nine. let love be without hypocrisy. And all my biblical counseling training and pastoral training kicked in and said, all right, well, then what would hypocritical love look like? Well, as I said, 12 ways it would be manifested, 12 ways in which we would see a hypocritical love. And here's the first. Love is hypocritical when it hides personal rebellion. When one uses love to hide personal rebellion, they are walking in a hypocritical love. This is demonstrated in Judas, in Judas' own life. As he walked on earth, as he ministered along the disciples, you can go from Matthew chapter 10 and following, as Jesus called out Judas along with the other disciples to follow him. And all along the way, he moved along. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000, serving food. And he was there when they had questions about money and how it should be spent. He was there when sent out on missionary journeys in Matthew chapter 11. He was there in all of those things operating and nobody knew anything different about him. To the point that when Jesus revealed that one of them among them was a deceiver who would betray Christ, nobody pointed at Judas and said, it's this guy. They all looked at themselves. Was it me? Was it my heart? I think I could be that one. Hope, tell me it's not me, Lord. Love that hides its real rebellion is a hypocritical love. Let me demonstrate this in another passage. Turn to Matthew 7. You see this in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is concluding this marvelous sermon, and he's giving warnings to those who are pretenders, and he is calling out the hypocrites. He's calling out the tree that has no fruit, and he's calling out who built on the faulty foundations. But he also says this in verses 21 through 23 of Matthew chapter 7. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, notice, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look, Lord, we've been active in your service. We've been active in doing all that you have commanded. We've demonstrated this great labor for you. Labor that was demonstrated in power over demons and labor that was demonstrated in healings and labor that is demonstrating in proclaiming your name. We prophesied according to your name. To which verse 23 says, Then 
I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And then here's the phrase, you who practice lawlessness. Your great love, your great devotion, your great service was all a mass to hide a heart that does not practice righteousness, that does not pursue godliness. So a hypocritical love then, illustrated from this very passage, would be a love that hides personal rebellion. Secondly, how would I know if it's hypocritical? A hypocritical love then seeks to gain from others. A hypocritical love is a love that seeks to gain from others. I think this is best illustrated by Acts chapter 8. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 8. And we see in Acts chapter 8, Simon the Magician. In Acts 8, Simon the Magician, we see him starting in verse 9. And Luke here in this account gives us a, a little kind of background to Simon before he exposes Simon's response. It says, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But... When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. It's a little background setting to Simon the magician a man who had great prominence before in his former life, a great prominence that people will be drawn to him, even saying this man is what is called the great power of God. He had this high privileged position. But when the gospel came and the power of the gospel came and the signs of the gospel minister were evident, the true signs of the spirits, even Simon was stunned by the difference. Jump down to verse 18. You see, Simon's heart is revealed. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Peter spotted this intention, spotted Simon's self-will, his selfish ambition, 
Luke gives us insight from verses 9 through verse 13 what was going on. Otherwise, if we just read this account, we would be taken off guard entirely. What in the world did Peter see? Luke gives us the background setting. You used to have a man who was prominent. You said a man that everyone ran to, looked to as being the power of God. And now God is really on display. God is distinguishing and demonstrating his real work through Philip, through Peter, through the apostles, through the testimony of the gospel. And yet now, in the midst of this, Simon doesn't know how to respond. And Simon wants that power. Greedy for it. His love now, which... Back in verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed his love is now being exposed. Actually, he believed because he wanted some of that power. This is a hypocritical love. Having an ulterior motive for why one would be drawn to the things of God. They're not coming in as an act of worship. They're coming from some other ulterior motive. That was Simon here. Of course, I think his best response, pray for me, because I could be blind. I don't know. I don't see. Pray for me yourselves so that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. I don't want this to be true about me. Thirdly, what would a hypocritical love look like? Well, hypocritical love would be motivated by something other than what God has commanded Hypocritical love isn't motivated by God's commands. It's motivated by other ambitions. And this is evident in 3 John. Turn over to 3 John. You see this in John's discussion of diatrophies in 3 John. 3 John, verse 9. John writes, and John says this as an opening statement. He says, I wrote something to the church. That is to say, as John says, I've made my instruction known. I've given it to the church. I wrote something. We don't necessarily have what that is. Maybe it was the book of 1 John or 2 John or something. Maybe it was a lost letter, but the account is basically this. I wrote something with, brought some clarity for the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Here's what the hypocritical love is. It exalts itself above the scriptures, above the apostles' teaching, above God's work in the ministry. Hypocritical love will not come under the command of scripture, will not come under the apostles' teaching, will not come and receive the truth. And John exposes it here in verse 9. Why? It's because he loves to be first. He loves preeminence. He loves an exalted position. A hypocritical love is hypocritical in this case because it will not love others more than himself. He'll only love himself. It's his rule, his way, his purposes, and therefore everything else must come under him. That's what makes it hypocritical. So here John exposes that. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes does not accept what we say. Well, I would be on the flip side, how would I practice genuine love? I willingly come under the truth, willingly desire to know the truth and to come under it. A teachability. Fourthly, what would be a fourth way in which love 
would be hypocritical. A hypocritical love mimics the Christian community around but does not believe in the resurrected Christ. Mimics the teaching around but does not come under the lordship of Christ or the love for Christ. A lot of different ways I can see this manifested. You can turn over to 1 John 4, particularly verse 6 because we see it there. But I'm reminded of this idea and it struck me when I was first saved. I was a brand new believer, came to Christ, uh, a radical you know, conversion because I was living in, in sin and rebellion. I didn't want, I mean, I had a God consciousness, but I was not worshiping God. So that when my heart was transformed, I knew immediately that wasn't of me, that was of God, because I know what I did not want, and now that I love God and want Him, I know He had done this work. And I remember going to church, and in that first church, I sit down, and I'm excited about the gospel work in my own life, and I figured everyone around me is equally the same, and I lean over to my neighbor, say to him, what's your testimony? When did God save you? And his answer is, I'm not, I don't believe these things. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would you be here listening to a preacher? There's a lot more entertaining things than me sitting here in a small little church in California. And his response is, well, I grew up in a kind of Christian community, so this is familiar to me. It's comfortable to me. And everyone's nice here. And I have good fellowship, so I enjoy this. And I thought to myself, again, this very principle highlighted here. You mimic the Christian community. You mimic godliness around. But it isn't genuine love for the resurrected Christ. Notice what John describes in John, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. He describes the heart of godliness versus worldliness. The heart of godliness embraces the teaching of God. The heart of worldliness is consumed by worldly ideologies and that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, we are to test the spirits. And that's why he says, those who are of the Antichrist or those who are of the world listen to the message of the world, but those who are of God listen to God. And then he comes down to verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One who mimics, one who seeks to try to reflect the Christian community without embracing the message of the gospel or embracing the Lord Jesus Christ is in a state of hypocritical love. Now this isn't to say somebody, you know, just to be very clear here, this isn't to say that somebody can't be being drawn to the Lord right now. That's that's clear. The Lord might be drawing somebody to himself right now, and they're in a state of searching. That's completely different. What I'm talking about is the person who's been around the church for a long time and keeps Christ constantly at arm's length. Yeah, I like all the benefits of gospel life and ministry and the relationships, but God, you just stay over there and I'll be over here. It's that that I'm recognizing is a hypocritical love. Another expression of hypocritical love? We're only five into it, so hopefully you're not overly convicted yet, but here's the uh, fifth one. 
is a hypocritical love is consumed with pride. It is consumed with pride. Well, actually, I'm going to insert right here since we're in First John. Here is the extra one for you. A hypocritical love is demonstrated by self-love, not love for others. Because notice how John continues in verse 7 and following. A hypocritical love does not care about the brethren. So notice what he says in verse 7. Brethren, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. A hypocritical love says, my needs, my wants, my desires are more important than anything else. But a genuine love says, it's, no, it's your needs, your desires, it's the body's needs. I care for them. I care for Christ, I care for the gospel, I care for the ministry of the truth, I care for all that God is accomplishing here on earth. I give myself to his labors and purposes. That's a genuine love, a, as, as John says it here. It's a love for others. Hypocritical love is a consume with a love for self. Now the next one. A hypocritical love is consumed with pride. It's consumed with pride. Here's what John Calvin says in regards to that. It says, A hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness and the deceitfulness of his own heart. And that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. Those who are deluded with false discoveries and affections are ever more highly conceited of their light and understanding. Say like this, a hypocritical love is consumed with a pride that resists the truth. It's unteachable, cannot be instructed, blinded to ambitions and desires, cannot see their own wants because, again, they are consumed with themselves. This would be Again, the warning that Paul gave in Romans 12, 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. When one is consumed by uh, hypocrisy in their love, they have this exalted view of themselves, of their superiority. I'm the greatest in this area. And they continue to lift up their greatness in a particular area, and they fail to see You are but a wretch saved by grace and brought there. It's a privilege that any of us are used by the grace of God in any area. There's no reason to be exalted in pride. The next expression of a hypocritical love, the seventh one, would be this, an inability to control anger. An inability to demonstrate a mastery over the flesh in order to control anger. Why? Because this is the thing that irritates the hypocrite. It should be my will. You shouldn't resist my will. You should do what I want. We should be getting what I want accomplished. And when it doesn't get, when they don't get what they want, anger comes flowing out. A love that is, again, patient controls anger. A love that is kind keeps anger at bay keeps anything that may cause anger to, to well up, whether that's fear or whether that's selfish ambition, keeps those things in check so that love can be demonstrated. 
Hypocritical love does not. Eighthly, hypocritical love, a, a love that is disingenuous, is a love that walks in the flesh in a pro- prolonged way. You can turn over to Galatians chapter 5 and we see that principle. Galatians five nineteen through 21. It says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The deeds of the flesh are evident. So a prolonged life walking in the flesh is a life that is not manifesting genuine love. It's an insincere love. Ninth, hypocritical love is marked by spiritual blindness. A spiritual blindness. And I like what Calvin says. Listen, here's what Calvin says in regards to this. He says, The human heart has so many recesses for vanity so many lurking places for falsehood, it is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. That one a heart, self-deceived, filled with spiritual blindness, using the kind of James terminology, a man who looks in a mirror intently, sees himself, and then pulls away and quickly forgets, is in this state of spiritual blindness, that is the one who is walking in a hypocritical love. It is their hypocrisy that is causing the blindness. It is their hypocrisy that is, again demonstrating out their spiritual unbelief. Or if they had believed the things of God and believed God's testimony, they would regularly remind themselves of God's testimony. They remind themselves of what is true and right, even when their flesh is pulling in different directions, so that they would anchor themselves within the truth. But because of this hypocrisy, they're filled with spiritual blindness. We can say this, Manifest spiritual blindness is the stink of hypocrisy. For you saw spiritual blindness, I know what's behind that is a hypocrisy ruling and reigning because the truth which would give you clarity and understanding, the truth which is light, which would give you clear insight into your own heart and life is ignored, forgotten, unbelief. So that what comes out of that then is spiritual blindness. I want to make a distinction between spiritual blindness and just ignorance or confusion. Certainly we may not hear, we may not know, we might have been falsely taught, we might have doctrines taught so we don't have clarity. There's a distinction. What I'm talking about is somebody who's been regularly taught the same passages, the same verses with clarity, and yet it brings no certainty to them. That is spiritual blindness. And at the root of that, if you want to get down in why it's there, hypocrisy, it's unbelief. It's a heart that will not believe the truth of God's word. Heavy, isn't this? Two more, three more actually, three more for us. The next one, hypocrisy is a willingness to question or condemn God for life circumstance. Anyone who is willing to condemn God 
for life's circumstance. I've seen this at times. Those who are, are saying, God, why did you do this to me? You've harmed me. You've hurt me in some way. If you really loved me, you would have protected me from this. They kind of have the attitude of Job's wife in Job chapter 2 and verse 9. Why don't you just curse God and die? It's that general attitude. God, you're on trial. You're the one who has to respond to our, in our courtroom. We're the ones sitting on the judge's throne. And now you have to give an account for what you're doing. This is, again, a hypocritical love because it does not understand what God has said about himself, about his practices. He doesn't believe what God has said about his practices that we've covered in Romans chapter 8. God is working all things together for good. He is accomplishing good in every circumstance and situation, yet you don't believe that, and therefore you're willing to condemn God. There's a book that I like that I, I've enjoyed, the author's writing on the topic of forgiveness in every chapter except the final chapter. And in his final chapter, uh, he wrote on why we should forgive God. And he actually starts in the opening paragraph by saying, my, my editors said, don't write this. And I thought to myself, you should have listened to your editors. Because it reveals in this little case, as if, if any sense... If our feelings or perspectives thought that we know more than God in that situation and that we have to then forgive God or that he is under our judgment is a complete misunderstanding of the love of God. God can do us no wrong. He is too good, too perfect, too loving, too merciful to wrong us in any way. And so it is a hypocritical love that says, well, my love for God is so strong that I can hold him into account. No, your love is so empty that you don't believe what he says about himself. A couple more. A love, a hypocritical love, trusts in our own righteousness. Listen to the words of John Calvin again. He says this, speaking about the, uh, the, those who are self-righteous. He says, what means do we have of humbling ourselves except by submitting all poor and destitute to the divine mercy. So, you I mean, this says, look, we, we have the greatest expression of humility by submitting ourselves to mercy. It says, until now, they have taught a pernicious hypocrisy who have connected these two maxims, that we should entertain humble thoughts of ourselves before God and that we should attach some dignity to our own righteousness. Basically, this is impossible. You can't be humble and then trust in your own righteousness. Trusting in our own self-righteousness, as if we can earn favor with God, as if he completed 99% of the work and we're just doing the last 1% to make ourselves favorable to God is a hypocritical love. No, he accomplished it all. Trust not in our own righteousness. Trust in his righteousness alone. And then lastly, how would an hypocritical love look like? The twelfth way? We treat our sins as small and other sins as greater. My sin was, well, that was just a mistake. My sin was, uh, that wasn't a sin. That was just a, a misunderstanding on your part. It wasn't a sin. It, it was just something that, uh, it was an accident. 
But you, you're the transgressor, you're the violator, you're the one who's against the moral law, you are the transgressor. No, the one who treats our sins small and others the greater is walking in a hypocritical love. No, the Bible that, that exposes sin exposes all of our sins equally. So back to Romans 12, verse 9. Paul says in these words here, Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Have a genuine love, a genuine care for others, a genuine humility that comes under the truth, a genuine teachability, a genuine heart that desires to walk in godliness, a genuine heart that sees its lowly condition and its trust in the righteousness of God. Let me encourage you, there are ways that we could falsely condemn ourselves. Let me just give you those quickly. It's two. You could have a false guilt. You could have a false guilt in this because of feelings where you think, well, I just feel like a hypocrite. I mean, I, I, I feel like a hypocrite and therefore I must be guilty. And our, our feelings don't define whether or not we are righteous or not. There are a lot of things I do that I don't like to do. I don't like to get on an exercise bike, but I do it. I don't like to eat certain vegetables. Well, all vegetables, but I do it. I don't like to do a lot of things, and I'm not a hypocrite because I did those things. I go against my feelings in those things because my feelings don't establish right and wrong. My feelings are just that. My feelings on the matter, but they are not... Divine fiat, they are not divine principles of establishing right and wrong. So feelings cannot determine hypocrisy. And the other aspect that can't determine hypocrisy is this, opinions and preferences. My opinions and my preferences don't establish hypocrisy, nor do your opinions and your preferences. So if I go against someone's opinions and I go against someone's preferences or I go against my own, I'm not walking in a hypocritical way. I'm just expressing a different opinion or preference and vice versa. So nobody's preference makes you a hypocrite if you go against it. Look, I'm married. I go against preferences all the time. And so does my wife. We go against preferences and opinions. We also give in to preferences and opinions all the time. doesn't make us hypocritical. So in your evaluation of your own heart as you're working through these things, distinguish between these false expressions and these genuine ones. And let me just say, what if indeed, walking through this, you found yourself burdened by the truth here? What's the remedy to this? The remedy is exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 1, 8 and 9. I guess it's fitting that we're teaching on 1 John tonight because we come to this. If we say we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the response when sin is exposed? Confession to God, the joy of knowing that he forgives, the belief, of course, in his son. I love that in chapter 
2 and verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Fix your eyes on Christ, his example. See, you know, often in a message like this that exposes our own sinful tendencies, those things that we're trying to hide, and then they get called to the light because the scriptures expose them. We get fearful. We want to pull away. Instead of pulling away, turn and run to Christ. Trust upon him. Recognize, look, I'm a finite man pointing out these things. What about God who knows the hearts and thoughts and intentions of the heart? He sees all those things. You can't run and hide from him. So turn to him. Believe upon him. Confess your sins, and your sins shall be forgiven. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths. Indeed, we are so frail. Because we could point back in our life at times in which we, in our best intentions, had fallen short. But like little children, we operate in our own self-deception. And like a gentle father, you come and minister to us, giving us instruction, opening our eyes to see. You encourage us with the truth. You build us up. You, you sanctify us so that we grow and we move from being children to being adults and we gain wisdom and understanding. So may this be a time that as we have spent time in your word that we have increased in wisdom and understanding, that we have understand our own heart and we can understand the natural temptations we face so that we can go to war against them and to be genuine in our love and affection for you. But most of all, may you also use this tr- truth to equip our hearts and minds that we may minister to one another, that when we see hypocrisy ruling, we can exhort and encourage and draw people to genuine practices of love. For we desire by your spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul has said here in Romans. And we desire the newness of life to rule and reign among us. So even in these moments where dead branches might be evidence, we rejoice that you prune them away, that you use your scriptures to renew us and to revive us. And so again, we trust not in our own self-righteousness, not in the perfections of our life and our conduct. We trust entirely in the work of grace supplied in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.